Well, am I on? Good morning. Well, it's, um, it's incredibly awkward to have to stand up and preach after, after that. We have been talking in church about love being a verb, that love is a doing word, it's an action, and compassion is, is such a, dare I say, easy way to demonstrate love in such, in such a way that makes an incredible difference. I had the privilege a few years ago of going with David and a team, got to share a room with David and Ian, which is, you know, it's a missions trip, sometimes you have to rough it, and, uh, but, got to, um, but got to meet a little girl named Ayanisha that we sponsor in Thailand, and I, I will never forget the way her grandmother held my arm for a photo. And to me, just a couple of extra coffees a week that I have at home instead of at a cafe, and the difference that that made for her entire family um, is incredible. So I want to second or third that to, to head out there and see what you can do to sponsor a young person, but more than just sponsor them, the opportunity to build relationship with them through letters and, and photos and the drawings that they send you. It's, it's just a whole other world that we have, more than just helping them financially, but building that relationship with them over so many years. There's, there's young ones out there that are four or five years old, and that gives us the chance to, to spend what, 12, 13 years, 14 years in the lives of these young people and see them grow up. And it's incredible. We are talking about love in church at the moment, and that love is a verb, it's a doing word, it requires some action of us. We've had this video scrolling behind us for weeks now, and, and I want to talk today about love, obviously, but how incredibly important that is for us as Christians, as followers of Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse well, verse 34, he said, I give you this new commandment. You need to love each other as I have loved you. And secondly, he goes on to say, it's because of your love for one another that people will know you are my disciples, that people will know that there is a savior, there is a, there is a Christ, there is someone who can heal them, restore them, bring them back into being right with God, that can give them that abundant life. They know that because of our love for one another. In Romans 1 verse 20, it tells us that all of creation since the beginning of time has pointed us towards the Creator. You see a beautiful sunset, you visit Taronga Zoo and get amazed at the animals, you watch a documentary, you sit on the beach and, and just get blown away by how amazing creation is. And, and the Bible tells us that, that that points us towards a Father, a Creator. But Jesus has said, in John chapter 13, that, that unfortunately it comes down to us to point people towards a saviour. A beautiful sunset will tell people of a creator. Our love for one another will tell people of a saviour. That's, that's an incredible assignment that we have been given as followers of Christ, as his disciples, to be in this world the demonstrators of love, the people that point a desperate world towards a saviour. And it's not done by our Facebook profile indicating that we're a Christian. It's not done by the occasional Instagram motivational scripture quote. 
It's not done by liking North Lake salvos on Facebook. It's not even done by attending church on a Sunday. It is done by our action of love to one another. It says in 1 John 3.18, which has been a, a scripture that we've used throughout this series, that uh, it's, we, we've got to stop talking about it. Love is not merely just words. It's not merely talking. It's an action that we need to do, an action that we need to take in demonstrating practical love to other people because they may view an amazing sunset and realize that something greater than their capacity to understand created it, but they view the way that we interact with them and with each other, with the world that we live in, and they realize that there's a saviour. I, um, I, if I haven't met you yet, I have three children. And, uh, and I have a daughter who's 11, going on 18. It's very scary time in my life. And uh, I, have a, I have a son, Houston, who we call Sonny. Some people think that we have, have two identical twins with different names. Now we just have strange nicknames for our children. Uh, he's nine, and, um, and he's, he's, um, he's going to change the world and and do incredible things. And we have Carter, who is, uh, he's, he's just about to turn six, and he's the enforcer of our family. Uh, he sticks up for everyone, keeps us all safe. I don't, I don't know where he got that from. He's absolutely crazy, has no fear. He's the complete opposite of me. And uh, he can already beat me in a wrestle. And, um, and that's even when I try. And I'm learning every day how to be a father. I've never been a father of an 11-year-old, which, which I have. So I, I'm learning that as well. And the more that I learn to be a father, the more I realize um, how much my parents were right. And secondly, how when I was a teenager, I really didn't know everything. <laughs> I thought that I did. And, and I, I see these situations in my kids that, that just make me realize maybe how difficult I was to my parents at a time. And if you're a parent, you'll know this situation where you have, you have a child or you know, you're, you're either a parent who, who, um, who experiences this daily or you're a son or daughter who probably put your parents through this same experience. And, and you know, I, I know that my parents, I, I'm quite um, confident now that when I was a teenager, my parents gave up praying for me and instead just prayed that I would have kids like me so I would learn... <laughs> A lesson. My mum's here. She's saying no, but we all know what she's really thinking. Uh, you you would experience this thing where you've got a kid, and uh, and say they're they're on their iPad or they're watching TV or or they're doing some kind of unimportant thing, and, and you give you assign them a task to do. You need to go and brush your teeth. You need to finish doing that. You need to set the table. You've got to unpack the dishwasher. Kids have got it so hard these days. Can't believe I have to unpack the dishwasher. Well, back in my day, we had to wash the dishes first. And, and you get this, this, this instant response back that says, oh, just give me five more minutes. I just want to finish this YouTube episode. Oh, it's a live Instagram feed. I can't stop watching it. I'll just wait for the next commercial break. And you get these excuses and these whinges and these, well, whinging and complaints a whole nother level. You know, I need you to, um, I'm not going to use names. I need you to unpack the dishwasher, darling. (laughs) Oh, why can't my brother do it? I've done it three times this week. 
you get these whinging, this complaining that just happens. And we, we've, we've all done it. We all do it. When we're adults, we just find a different way to do it in a more mature way that doesn't sound like we're trying to get out of something. But in the rawness and immaturity of kids, they just blurt out exactly what they're thinking. I don't want to do it. I can't be bothered. And even when there's a consequence attached to it, you know, say to my, um, one of my kids, hey, mate, if, if you don't pack your lunch, you will be hungry tomorrow. Still, there's a consequence attached to it. And yet there's, there, there's still a whinge and a complaint and an objection to doing it that comes out when you ask them to do something. Don't look at me like it's not you. We've all done it. But I realized something in the rawness of children because they are honest and how it really always comes back to just wanting to be comfortable and stay where they are, selfish about just wanting to do what impacts them. And a word that I can't say very well, which is familiarity or being familiar with the circumstance that they're in and not wanting to move away from it. And that, what that results in their life, in their instruction that comes from a parent and their lack of obedience or their inaction to do something really comes back down to they don't want to. They can't see the effect that is worth it for them. They just can't be bothered. They're selfish. They're comfortable. They, they don't want to, to do it. And I'm not having a go at my children because I know yours are the same. But I also know that that's our human nature. We love to stay in a place that's comfortable. Our first and foremost thought is to think about ourselves. That, that's why every day we have to remind ourselves to renew our mind because our natural human state is to think of ourselves. So we can't blame ourselves for thinking like that. But in light of the fact that love requires action, we do have to think a little bit differently because as we said, the assignment that Christ has given us is to be the people in this world, the lighthouses that point people towards a saviour, which is a far greater consequence of inaction than it is for one of my sons to turn up at school one day without a packet of tiny teddies and an apple. There's a far greater consequence of our inaction in showing love, in our comfort, in our familiar place, in our thinking of ourselves first, there is a greater consequence if we do not practice a life that points people towards a saviour through our actions of love. Now, there's this great story in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 17, and the Old Testament is brilliant. We're about to look at this, this historical reference of the Israelites having left Egypt being free, no longer captives, and moving across to their promised land. And it's just incredible that something that happened thousands and thousands of years ago can actually be relevant to us today. And that's the purpose of the Bible. It tells us in uh, Timothy that the whole scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is good with our life, to teach us what we shouldn't do and to equip us for the purposes that God has. So even though the Old Testament can sometimes read like a historical story, there's so much in it that we can relate to our life in the day and age that we live in. And particularly anytime we want to think about people who are comfortable, 
people who prefer a familiar place, people who are a little bit selfish and people who are known for whinging and complaining, we always have to look back at the Israelites, especially in their journey out of Egypt. And I've been stuck in this chapter for for quite a while, just getting so much uh, revelation from it. Um, I just sometimes can't get through it before I stop. And a couple of months ago, Mel came out. Uh, I was in at my desk at home, and and she was um, in our room reading. And she came out and said, "Where's that? What's that scripture in Exodus where the Israelites are whinging?" And I said, "Just open up Exodus." <laughs> It might be easier to look at and narrow it down to the ones where they're not whinging. And, and so we, we look at this, this group of people in Exodus chapter 17. The situation is they're just a few weeks. Really important to remember, just a few weeks, not a few years, not even a few months, a few weeks having been freed from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt Verse 1 says, At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of Sin. Sin being a place. In the Hebrew, it's spelled C-I-Y, and it's different to the word that we know in the New Testament, Sin, even though it's spelt the same in most modern translations. And moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Here's a group of people who, who just weeks earlier have been freed from slavery and captivity in Egypt. They've seen God do incredibly miraculous things. They've been uh, pinned against the Red Sea at certain death and the sea parts and they cross. They've been starving in the desert and God sends them manna. They, they, they complain that they need more meat in their life, so, they, so God sends them quails. And, and they're constantly being looked after by God. And here we find them straight away again, at the beginning of chapter 17, straight into another complaint and another whinge, another request to go back to the familiar place, uh, a desire to stay comfortable rather than to progress. Because what God is actually doing, he's got them on a journey here. They're in this place called the wilderness of sin. And the Hebrew word for that means a thorn. It means an annoyance. It means something that, that irritates you while you walk. And we, we need to remember that a lot of these places were named after the fact. So the fact that they were whinging and complaining and they were in desperate need of something, they called that place the place of annoyance, the place of the thorn, the wilderness of sin. A couple of chapters over, God's about to deliver to them the law on Mount Sinai through Moses, the Ten Commandments, the right way of living, the purposed way of life, the way to live life in God's perfect will. He's about to deliver that to them a couple of chapters over. So what we see is that God is wanting the the Israelites, the nation of Israel, to move from this place of being annoyed, of being comfortable, of being familiar, having a thorn in their side, of whinging and complaining, and journeying them all the way across to Mount Sinai, which is the place of obedience. That's his request and his will for their life, is to leave the place of being whingeful (laughs) and complaintful, of whinging and complaining, and move and trust him and land in the place of obedience. 
But the Bible tells us that they were so stuck in their complaints and their whinging for water that they didn't trust God, they didn't step out in obedience, they set up place in Rephidim, which means resting place. Instead of moving in obedience towards what God wanted and what he needed for them, they took up camp and they stayed where it was comfortable, where it was familiar, and where it seemed to work best for them. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Let's remember, hundreds of years of captivity and slavery, a few weeks later, they're whinging and complaining so much about their freedom that they want to go back to the place where they were. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me after all we've done for them. I added that part. The Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the waters of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, Strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Really simple story. God wanted them to move from being whinging and complaining people into obedience. They rested in the place called Riffidim that suited them. But when they actually responded and Moses and the elders journeyed to Mount Sinai, God delivered a supernatural miracle that saved their nation in a place that absolutely did not make sense. Because back here, God's saying, look, I I hear that you're thirsty. I, I get that. What I need you to do is actually walk further into the desert because you need water. I I hear that you really need water, so what I want you to do is to move further away from the place that you know is comfortable, that is familiar, that has water. I I want you to trust me and be obedient and walk further. I hear that you're really thirsty, so what we're going to do is we're going to get all these couple of million people and we're going to head up a mountain where there's less chance of a water source and trust me that the answer to what your nation needs will be found further from the place that makes sense. That is walking in obedience. But in true Israelite form, in true human nature, we just made camp in a resting place and trusted in ourselves in a place of inaction when God required action to climb a mountain further from what made sense to see a thirsty nation delivered and saved from their thirst. Now again, what's great about the Old Testament is the practical application that a historical story can have to us thousands of years later. Because we exist in a nation that is absolutely thirsty for water. Not necessarily, but in some cases, the water that comes from the sky. But perhaps the water that comes from a little bit higher than the sky, the heavens. A spiritual thirst a nation that is whinging and complaining for, for a logical answer in a place of resting to try and quench that thirst, whether it be relationships, whether it be greed, 
whether it be finances, whatever it might be, we all know the situation that our nation is in. We all know as well that the solution, that the answer doesn't come from finding water in natural places. It comes from obedience to God, climbing a mountain and, in, and expecting a miracle to happen that brings thirst and saves an entire nation. And that is our responsibility, unfortunately. That's the assignment that we have. In a nation that is so thirsty, that is so desperate to have a thirst quenched, it's not going to come from anything that they'll find in a Google search. It's only going to come from them experiencing a disciple of Christ that is demonstrating love that points them towards a saviour. Because if we flick over to John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in Samaria, he says to her, we know the story, she's there to get water because she's thirsty. Her camels are thirsty. She's got to take water back to her family who are thirsty and she meets Jesus there. And Jesus says to her, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. We know this, a thirsty nation doesn't need a bottle of Mount Franklin. It needs to encounter Jesus because the water that he gives quenches the thirst that we all have in our soul, in our life, to find him. We know this stuff. If you jump over a couple of chapters to John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus is talking again and he promises the living water. The heading says, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. So we now know, or have put together, we have a thirsty nation, desperate to have its thirst quenched by no means that it's going to find, except when it encounters Christ, the source of the living water. And how does our world, our nation, encounter Christ? Yeah, through us through us. It's not through a a marketing campaign. It's not through a a bumper sticker on a car. It's not through a a well-placed Facebook advertising campaign for our next evangelistic event. It's not through our carols. It is through us and the way that we demonstrate love to each other. Because our demonstration of love points people towards a living water that they need to have. A nation needs to be saved, just like we saw back in Exodus 17, when a group of people didn't stay in their place of complaining and whinging and comfort and being familiar and just five minutes more on my iPad. Oh, that's really inconvenient for me at the moment, Mum, to unpack the dishwasher because I'm doing something that I want to do. Not stay in that place, but to walk obediently and trust God. And a supernatural miracle that didn't make any sense at all 
on top of a mountain from a rock because a guy struck it with a stick and water came out that literally saved a nation. And the same opportunity presents to us in 2017. It's not an assignment that should weigh heavy on our shoulders. Oh my goodness, my life, our life is to point the world to a saviour. It should be something that encourages us. All we need to do is walk in obedience to what Christ has for us, to demonstrate love as an action, not just merely talk about it. And that's all we have to do. Uh, do, do I need to be able to quote 17 different Bible passages on salvation? No. Do, do you need to have completed study? No. Do you need to be a leader in the church? No. Most definitely not. All you need to do is show love to the world that we live in. And that is what points people. Have you ever been in one of those situations where people are absolutely astonished as to why you would do something? Last week at CityServe, this poor guy from the council, I don't think he could get over. He kept questioning us. What kind of volunteering do you guys do? <laughs> well, you do that as well? Do you just do this once a year? Do you do anything else? He just couldn't get over that a group of people would come out on a Saturday when he was getting paid to be there and paint a fence for no other reason than well, we can. There's nothing in it for us. But we can. We can show love. So that all those people attending Federal Park this year to watch the cricket have a beautiful non-graffitied view behind their son or daughter that's playing. But there's something that struck out to me back in Exodus 17 that really gives us a key as to what it takes to be those people. Because in verse 2, we read that it says, So once more the people complained against Moses. Poor Moses. In verse 6 it tells us that, So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. So there's a difference here because in verse 2, it says that the nation, the people, came to Moses. In verse 6 it says Moses and the elders. It doesn't say in verse 2 that the people came to Moses and the elders. It doesn't say, well, the elders were on annual leave enjoying a vacation. Um, in their absence, the people sought out Moses. It tells us that it was Moses versus the people. Yet in verse 6, the elders are suddenly present with Moses, standing separate to the people as God moves. There's something that happens between verse 2 and verse 6 that takes these people who are known as the elders, the leaders of Israel, and separates them from the whingers and the complainers and those that are familiar and comfortable and has them join Moses in climbing the mountain in obedience to see a nation saved. There's something that happens between verse 2 and verse 6, and it isn't a great mystery. It's not cryptic. The answer's in verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. What the elders needed to know, because we have to assume that because they're not mentioned in verse 2, the people came to Moses, we have to assume that they are collecti collectively referred to as the people. 
The nation of Israel and its elders came to Moses and complained that there was no water. But by verse 6, it's a completely different story. They're standing with Moses on top of the mountain, watching him strike the rock and God save a nation. And the answer is in verse 5. Because God tells Moses to walk out in front of all the people that are whinging and complaining and comfortable, familiar, happy just to sit, even though they're thirsty, and hold the staff up and remind them what God has done. To lift the staff in front of all the people who are comfortable and say, do you remember only a few weeks ago we saw God move in our lives? It was only a couple of weeks ago that we stood in front of a sea faced with certain death as the Egyptians chased us down in their chariots. And this staff I held above the Red Sea and God moved and it opened and we found freedom and safety. We were delivered from our enemies. Do you remember when we were hungry and God moved and provided us food from the heavens exactly when we needed it and how much he needed. When Moses reminded the nation of Israel that God had moved in their life, that he had answered their prayer before, that they had been made free, they had been made whole, they had been restored, they had been healed, they had been provided for. A group of people separated themselves from the mass known as the elders, and climbed the mountain with Moses. And a nation was saved. When we walk in obedience to what God has for us, remembering that he first did it for us, that should be all we need to remind ourselves that if God can move once in our lives, he can move again in someone else's. If he has freed us, he can free others. If we have been shown love, we can surely show love to other people. And in doing that, we no longer stay in the wilderness of sin, no longer camp in the place of comfort, refidim, but we join together. We climb a mountain that might not make sense. It's completely illogical to find the answer takes us further away from our comfort place, but in the end delivers water, living water, that saves a nation, literally. And it's the same opportunity that we have each and every day when we choose not to be comfortable, not to stay in the resting place, but to walk in the obedience that Christ has for us, to show love for one another, love for those who can't be loved, Love for our enemies. And that is how they encounter the living water that they need. Romans 12 is our blueprint. And I'm going to finish by reading this. Yes, the entire chapter. I'm going to ask the band to come. And we're just going to finish with, with some worship. And, and I want us to read Romans 12 together because... It's, I, I just find that this is an absolute blueprint. How do we live a life of action towards love being a verb? How do we show it to other people? How do we live it out each and every day? I think that Romans 12 is the absolute guide that we can have. 
So I'm going to read it out this morning to finish and I've asked the band just to lead us in some worship at the end so we can just have some reflection on what action we need to take, what places we're comfortable in that we need to move out of, what obedience we need to walk in this week that God has instructed us to do. Romans 12, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. The message paraphrase says, don't become so well adjusted that you fit in without even being noticed. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I, don't, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, just do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love each other. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. That one's not fun. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honourable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, you're not going to like this part. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. It gets better. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Let's stand as we pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us such clear instruction.
on how to live an obedient life for you. Lord, we pray that Romans 12 would be our blueprint for life, how we can live a life that serves you in every way. Our life being a living sacrifice to you, taking our everyday ordinary life and placing it before you so that we may be a beacon of light and hope that points people towards the living water that you would have. Lord, as we finish today, as we close in worship, I pray that you would challenge us with an action of how we can walk in obedience to leave our comfortable, safe place and see a family member, a workmate, someone in our street, a city, a state and a nation saved because they find your life-giving water. Lead us, Lord. Speak to our hearts this morning. May our life forever represent you in the actions that we take for each other. Amen.